Good morning. What's going on, everyone? Great to see you. Yes, Stephen is my roommate as well. Um, it is great to be together with you guys. My name is Seth Mitchell. Uh, I help lead the campus ministry here for the Blue Ridge Church. And uh, man, my heart has already been so moved by the service. I just feel like, man, like what an incredible time to be able to worship God as he's the only one to be able to say that, uh, you know, he, he's taken our sins, not in part, but the whole and nailed them to the cross uh, to hear about these different stories about how God's our shepherd. I'm just, I was moved. I'm just, and I think even just the family that we get to share and how we get to know one another, this really is something special that we have here. This is a special home that we have. And so I'm just really grateful um, to be here. Um, the title of my lesson today is The Way of the Weeping King. And uh, we're going to be celebrating Palm Sunday together here, um, but maybe in a little bit of a different way than we'd expect. Um, and, uh, you know, before we hop in here, let's pray and then uh, we'll get into it. Dear God, uh, Father, I'm just thankful, Father, Lord, uh, for making us like leaders, Father God, for building a strong army, Father God, that can follow you uh, all the way to the gates of heaven, Father God. I'm grateful that you're the only one, Lord God. We put no name above you. Uh, Father, I just pray that as we're together, Father God, that we can get ready to hail the King, Father God. I'm so grateful for Jesus uh, being the way forward, Lord God, and always being the way. Um, I pray that you speak through me, Father God. I pray that uh, you fill me with your spirit, Lord God, and that, um, Lord, your word can really come through. I'm so thankful for you, and it's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen. You know, there's something about being home. That it's, a, it's, a very, it's a very compelling idea, I think, for us, this idea of finally getting home. Uh, today, I got actually a special part of my family home uh, with me and my new home in Charlottesville. Uh, my little sister, Alaire, and then my mom and dad, Dave and Margie. Make sure you say hi to them, encourage them uh, for being here. Um, but, you know, home is, home is a special place. I think I've been really grateful to call this my new home. Uh, but have you ever been home... And it just doesn't really feel like home because someone else is over. <laughs> you know, there was a couple of weeks back in high school where I had a, uh, we had a plumber that was, was over at our house for like two weeks straight. And every time I come home, I kind of had this like back home school routine where I'd go back and I'd go into my couch and I'd have a half hour. I'd take my shirt off and I'd eat food and I'd watch TV and it was great. But every time I came home, this stinking plumber was there. And I was like, I felt like I had to, I almost got more formal as I walked in the door, right? I walk in and you know that uncomfortable nod that you do to people that you haven't, like you're kind of passing them maybe by in a hallway a couple times and you're just kind of like, and you don't really know them, but you know you need to acknowledge that you both just saw each other. That's what it constantly felt like in my house. And so it just was like, this is home, but there's someone else here. And... You know, I just don't really know how to feel home while I'm home. Um, and, uh, you know, it, because really the thing with home is it's supposed to be a refuge of peace, right? It's supposed to be a place where you can just totally be yourself, whatever weird home habits. I know, don't laugh at me because I know you guys have those weird home things that you guys do too. Um, and, but, but it really is supposed to be a place of, of, of peace, and, you know, for Americans, our idea of home, you know, our country is only like 243 years old. And, and most of us have immigrants somewhere down the line. And, and we're a pretty patriotic country. Um, but our idea of home is actually pretty limited. 
uh, because we don't really have this long history uh, to, to be able to celebrate together. But for the Jewish culture, you know, the idea of something of being home was something promised by God. Uh, you know, last week we talked about how God promised Abraham in Genesis 15. We've been talking about building family. And he, he promises Abraham that his, his kids are going to be able to have a home, that he's going to have children and that they're going to be a part of a great region right in the, in the geographic area of Israel, right? And dwell in it. But after that, after that promise, actually most of the time in the Old Testament, they're not home. They're, uh, they're either exiled away from the land because of sin or they're being occupied by another nation. And even in that promise in Genesis 15, it says, Know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. And they will be enslaved and mistreated there. And so built in with this idea of being home and being together and receiving this promise is, is at the same time a promise of being displaced from it. And Jerusalem, uh, in, in this in the region of Israel, uh, Jerusalem just means uh, Jerusalem, which means the city of peace. Um, but I was looking it up, and you know, during Jerusalem's long history, uh, they've been destroyed twice, they've been besieged twenty-three times, attacked fifty-two times, and captured and recaptured forty-four times as a city. <coughs> And with this much violence and separation between them and their land, you can only imagine how they would desire a place to call home that would be safe and secure. You know, in many ways, their peace was attached to being a part of this promised land. And I think that's why the idea of a Messiah coming was so compelling to them. Because a Messiah was going to be someone that could rescue. I mean, that's, that's current Israel right now. I mean, it's just, it's, they're waiting for someone to come and bring them home to be able to get rid of all the bad guys, to get rid of all the fear, to cut away war and for them to be at peace. And, uh, you know, they, they prophesy the Old Testament prophets would prophesy about this prince of peace that was going to come, that was going to wipe out all the surrounding nations and the oppressors and be able to lead them back to their land triumphantly. And so when we're picking up in Jesus's time under during during the Roman Empire, they kind of, it's almost like they have a plumber in the house, if that makes sense. So, you know, they're home, but they couldn't really be themselves. And this created a lot of tension. You know, there was a lot of messiahs rising up, leading the people, trying to liberate them from the people of Rome. Uh, and Rome came down hard on rebellions. You know, part of what made it so difficult for them to be themselves is they couldn't really do anything on their own. They were heavily taxed. Uh, and... Any kind of opposition or rebellion that Caesar was not going to be king led to torture and punishment to the to extreme de- degree. Uh, the Romans were, were conquesters. They were, they were victors. And so there was this rising hatred between these groups of people. And at the height of all of this tension between the Jews and Rome, Jesus comes on the scene. And this last week in Jerusalem is what Palm Sunday is all about. And this, this week before his death is the main event of the gospel. Uh, you know, Matthew and Mark spend a third of their gospel on this week of Jesus's life. He's been alive for 33 years. They spend a third of the gospel on his week. Luke spends a few chapters and John spends roughly half the gospel on it. And so the question for us is, why is this, why is this such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem? And let's read and find out. So in Luke 19, it says, and when he said these things, 
he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain that is called Olivet, he sent, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where you are entering and you will find a colt on tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. Skip to verse 35. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing, on their, clo- throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near to the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do. For all the people were hanging on his words. You know, Jesus is riding into town here. And the scripture kind of paints an ironic picture. You know, these Jews are overjoyed at Jesus' arrival. And this is a very Jewish moment. Uh... I can't explain all the reasons why this is so cool and all the history and, and the, the things that would have made this moment so significant for them. But they're seeing this and they're like, oh, my gosh, this is what we've been reading about. This guy is coming down. There's the palms. There's the don. I mean, it, it just this image was like, oh, my goodness. And he just raised Lazarus from the dead. And so all these people are here and they're like, this guy has real power. Uh They're mainly thinking that this is the guy that's going to, the main point of what they're thinking is this is going to be the guy that brings our home back. Uh, And by saying that Jesus was king, they're saying that Caesar is not. It's a a very traitorous incoming uh, visit to Jerusalem. You know, they're saying that this is our new king, not Caesar. He's going to restore us to our proper place. He has real power, right? And yet amidst the shouts of joy and praise, hailing Jesus as this king that was going to liberate them from the Romans. You don't see what you'd expect. Rather than a warrior king ready to overthrow um, the whole empire, we see a stonemason on a donkey weeping. Why? And I think to get a perspective on this, you really have to try and put yourself in Jesus' shoes. You know, Jesus was there in the beginning. Jesus made this land. He made plants. He made people. He was there when Adam and Eve were first with him in the garden, right? And, you know, he he was there when they rebelled and they were exiled from this land. He remembers taking Abraham outside, like you guys uh, talked about last week, and promising him under the stars that he had made that he's going to inherit it and that his children will inherit it and, and, and sending him out to walk in it. He remembers Isaac and Israel and the 12 sons who traveled out of this land to Egypt, away from it. 
He remembers Moses leading them back toward it and Joshua capturing it again. He remembers the idolatry and refusal to listen over and over again and all of the exiles and destructions of the city that had happened uh, before that. He remembers the countless prophets that he'd send and judges he's raised up to help his people. And when he gets here, the son of God is at the gates of the city that killed all before him. And the last man and the last thing standing between them and the gates of hell is him. And, you know, not only this, but every day he's been alive. None of us know how we're going to die or when we're going to die. But he's had this countdown timer, knowing every day closer and closer what he's going to have to suffer for the people. And we wonder, why is he crying? Why is he weeping? Is it that he's mourning for fear of what will happen to him? Right? All, I mean, the kingdom of God has been coming and coming and breaking through into the kingdom of earth. And now this is, this is the last straw. Is he mourning for fear of what it's going to cost him? Is he disappointed by their unbelief? Is he, is he, just, is he just so moved that not everybody's going to get it? Is he overwhelmed with the responsibility that he's wielding? Is he just weeping out of a, overwhelmed with, with what he's got to do? No, you know, the thing he says that he's weeping about is if you only knew city of peace, what would bring you peace? But you are blinded from it. It is hidden from your eyes. The reason he's weeping at the gate of the city is not for himself, but for them. That after all of the efforts through the millennia to help them get peace, they, can't, they still can't see what will bring them peace. You know, they think that their peace will come from a change of circumstance. If we have a new king and Rome's out and we're living in our homeland, we'll be at peace. But Jesus knew that wasn't good enough. He even talks about in a few years, what's going to happen is the temple that they've worked so hard to rebuild over and over again is going to be destroyed once again. The circumstances are always changing. Jesus saw what they could not see. That the primary prevention from real peace was not Roman occupation but that they perverted God's plan for peace, which was for him to be the king. You know, through the years, the Israelites kept worshiping God outwardly, but inwardly their hearts were full of idols. And in this passage, we see that rather than coming and overthrowing the government of Rome, he throws over the tables in the temple because the Jews were making God's temple into a place that served themselves, making them kings rather than serving God as king and serving others as kings. And I think today, you know, we also can look for peace in a church of change of circumstance, right? We can look for peace in becoming the king. And, you know, I think for me that that's definitely been the case. Um, as I've grown up throughout life, I've had this constant sense that I'm, I'm not at home, if that makes sense. That I'm not, I, I haven't been able to be at peace no matter how much I've gained and no matter how much I've worked for. You know, I, I grew up. Um, and I battled with a lot of, of dark thoughts. I, I battled with a lot of hatred towards myself. And, and the thing that I wanted was to become more like the things that I saw in other people. My little brother was a really talented football player. I was like, man, if I could just be more athletic, then I'd be happy. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in a band with my best friend, Mark, and he was working with Taylor Swift's old manager. And I was working with like, you know, just nothing, you know, essentially just like adding like a little bit onto his tracks and just feeling like, man, if I could just be more like Mark, if I could just sing better, right, then I'd be happy. And I, you know, I had this like, I had special 
uh, you know, I was in special ed. And so, you know, I worked super hard uh, to try and like expand my kingdom, if that makes sense. You know, I, I, uh, I started working super hard so that in school, so that I was getting four O's uh, and that I even got academic honors from my university, um, like an award uh, from like the, 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 all the leaders of the university. Um, and, you know, I, I worked super hard. I couldn't run a half mile. I ended up doing an Ironman. I was the youngest person in the race. Everything was about, I want to become king. I want to show that I want to increase my property. I want to show that I can be good enough. I want to find peace in the fact that I'm a good student. I want to find peace that I have uh, a good enough uh, body or I have a, a good enough uh, music or voice or anything like that. And the thing is, it's never enough. You know, they lived in a, com- a culture where con- the one who conquests is the one that has peace. They're the ones that have victory. They're the ones that are the best and have security. And I don't think we live in a culture that's too different from that. You know, when I, I visited UVA, it, it had the same thing. You know, I just think about the, the fact that we're national champs. It's awesome. I'm so pumped that we're national champs. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. But UVA is all about having the best grades. Best body, best athletics, best facilities, best internships. And it's funny what happens when you bring a group of people that have been the best in a certain environment together. The, the insecurity that reigns is unparalleled. And we think that these idols, these accomplishments, these things will satisfy us, but they don't. You know, there's a, a quote about pride from C.S. Lewis that says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something. Only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is not the comparison that makes you proud. It's the pleasure of being above the rest. And... When I came to UVA, I remember I was taking a prayer walk Sunday morning before, uh, you know, before service. And I was, I was, I was broken. I was weeping uh, on my prayer walk because the, the thing that made me want to move here was like I've, I've bought into that game. I've bought into the game of being the high accomplisher, being the one that, that puts his peace and his security. And I know that they will never experience the love or the peace in those things. Uh, that God can give them. Uh, you know, Bruce Springsteen, I'm throwing this one in there for my dad. Uh, he's a Jersey boy. Uh, but it says, poor man want to be rich. Rich man want to be king. And a king ain't satisfied till he rules everything. And, you know, today our, our world is so lost on how to find peace. <laughs> and that's because every self-help book and yoga class and income statement points you to find it within yourself. Become the king. But when we try to become the king, we become slaves to becoming. And we're constantly trying to grow our kingdom to validate our power, worth, beauty, etc. And in a sense, we never feel at home in our own skin. We're always looking for more. But Jesus showed us a different way. Jesus showed us that true peace comes not from being king, but from surrender. You know... As Jesus rode in, into humility, into Jerusalem, he did it in humility, which threw the conquesters off later in the week. See, because these people could follow Jesus when he was on a king's colt, but they couldn't follow Jesus to a criminal's cross. Yeah. 
For them, peace looked like a conquest for self over others. For Christ, peace looked like a surrender of self for the Father and for others. And, you know, surrender on the cross to the people that were hailing Jesus in this moment looked like a loss to Rome. And that's not what they wanted. And so a week later, they're probably the ones that were cursing Jesus, that were persecuting him as he walked up in defeat uh, and really in surrender to the cross. And Jesus, the funny thing about Jesus is Jesus could have come in and had ultimate conquest on earth and established his kingdom and shown everyone. He says, I could have called on 10,000 angels uh, to rule. Um, But because he knew where his true home was, the circumstances and the people didn't affect his peace. The only thing that affected his peace was that we couldn't have peace without him. And so he left his home so that we could ultimately take his place in it. You know, Jesus gave up a heavenly crown for a crown of thorns. Jesus gave up a heavenly throne for a cross and was exiled from his father, even to, even to hell, so that we could be brought home to him. For every other false Messiah, the cross was a loss to Rome, but not for Jesus. For Jesus, it was the ultimate conquest of what no man had ever overcome before, sin and even death. If we surrender to King Jesus, we don't need to fear harsh treatment like the Jews did from the Romans. The idea of surrender to them meant taxation and even punishment. But we can look forward to a home we never knew we needed. You know, for those in Christ, in some ways we still feel like the Jews. We're still in the midst of so much oppression in the world. And I think it doesn't, something still doesn't feel right. Even though we're able to have peace because we know where our home is, we still feel off. There's still this, this sense that things really aren't as they should be. And just like the Jews, we're waiting for a Messiah to come again. But one day, too, we will be part of his triumphal entry. And we will have permanence with our humble king and be more at home and fulfilled than we could ever imagine. In Revelation 7, there's this really cool mirroring of this picture that we just read about. It says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Verse 13, Then one of the elders asked me, These in white clothes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And, they, and he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made white and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And I've been thinking about this service, and it's totally been the Holy Spirit. You know, we read about Psalm 23 and being led to, to the water, right? And, and, and we're hearing about the stories of broken families, broken homes, just, you know, all this, these hard things that I appreciate everyone that's shared so far. Um, but man, like, 
Everything that we work for to become kings, God gives us in this. You know, when we let Jesus be king, instead of trying to be our own, own king, we become fully satisfied. We become his temple, not an earthly temple that gets broken down and serves self. You know, we're not hungry or thirsty, even though we work for food now. We're not oppressed, even though we feel the weight of sin. We have companionship, even though we may feel alone here. There's no sadness, and every tear will be wiped away by God. We have overflowing abundance. You know, as we close out, the choice is really ours. Who do we want to be king of our lives? You know, just like Jesus... We aren't promised peaceful circumstances here if we do follow him. The scripture, the scripture even says that these, these people washed in white uh, have experienced great tribulation. But we are promised a peace that transcends understanding now and then by knowing that we are truly at home in Jesus. We have a true Jerusalem, a true city of peace that we are going towards. And that peace can embolden us now to walk in the way of the weeping king. You know, rather than being enslaved to becoming, we can know that we are. Rather than having to compare ourselves to others, we can have compassion on the lostness of the world. And rather than flipping out when we're angry or upset, we can flip tables for righteousness of injustice. Rather than having to earn our value, we can enjoy God's love and rejoice in him. So with that, we'll close out. Praise be to the King of Kings.